Jay Little, nice to meet you. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Nice to be met. <laughs> very good. We were just talking about our animals, actually, before we turned on the recorder. Um, you said you have a couple of cats. That, yes, uh, yes. Uh, we've got one enormous cat called the Meeple. <laughs> and course. then an all-black cat called Jedi. So you can tell I'm firmly in the pop culture nerd uh, your, area. Your branding is consistent. Yes, it is. That's great. Uh, it, it's funny. I'll just mention too that Jedi, the day that we uh, adopted him from the shelter was the day that I found out that we got the Star Wars uh, license when I was at Fantasy Flight Games and that I'd be designing X-Wing and uh, the role-playing game. So I'm like, this is just serendipity. I mean, the force wants us to adopt this cat. So <laughs> had to do it. I can't wait to see the tiny lightsaber. <laughs> but uh, look, great to meet you. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I, you know, I, um, I talk a lot about uh, historical games and, and war games, but um, you know, what you do fits right into the strike zone. As far as I'm concerned, I, I love, uh, I love Star Wars. I love role-playing games, and um, and you've got such a rich history and all of those things. I, before we start on all of that, though, so much meat to interview you and talk to you about. Um, I, you know, I just want to know a little more, bit more about who you are, and um, uh -oh. you you, <laughs> and and I'll let you tell us. Right, that's always the best story, uh, as opposed to frame through me, but. Um, you know, you, you, you also uh, work as a patient advocate, uh, Yeah, I understand. And so, and so I would love the history yeah. and just your perspective on, on, on life. Um, so on May 24th, 2011, I suffered my second heart attack. Uh, I was only 38 at the time, and it was an LAD occlusion, also known as the Widowmaker. I ended up in a Medically induced coma for 19 days. When I woke up, I was paralyzed from the neck down. I spent a total of three and a half months in the hospital. And then there were months, if not a year or more of uh, therapy, both physical, occupational, and things like that. Um, and it obviously left a big impact on me. Since then, I've also had four more heart attacks um, and a number of surgeries. And particularly around that time, uh, I couldn't work full-time at Fantasy Flight Games anymore. That was too big of a challenge between the commute and the hours. So looking for something to do with my time outside of therapy, I got more involved with the hospital that was providing therapy as well as the university where a lot of my care was provided. And I would go to patient and family advocacy uh, and patient and family-centered care talks, discussions, conventions, and I would talk a little bit more about my experience in the healthcare field. Cause I know for a lot of people talking about health insurance and healthcare is intimidating or daunting and they have really, really strong opinions of it. And for me right now, I've run up a tab of about $5 million in medical expenses. Wow. And, and I know that I would not be alive without health insurance, regardless of how people feel about it. It has literally saved my life. Um, and, and I also found out that because my wife works in the healthcare industry, that if she didn't know what questions to ask and she didn't know when to push back, that I would not have received the level of care that I did. And so that was really eye-opening as well. That impacted obviously not just my health and the way that uh, I tried to approach my lifestyle, but it also changed my perspective on a lot of other things. 
For example, I used to be a very angry driver. I used to be one of those people who, oh, you're not going to merge in front of me. And I'd always try to drive 10 miles above the speed limit. And then suddenly afterward, I'm like, what's your rush? And I just started to be a lot more calm, a lot more consistent uh, in areas that otherwise would frustrate me because I'm like, really, is this that important to you considering what else could have happened or what else has gone on in your life? It even changed my design philosophy. Uh, and that's because I became more patient and as a designer. Instead of just trying to kick stuff out the door and move on to the next thing, because it was it, it felt like being in a factory where you're on the line and you always have to keep things moving. It reminded me of that uh, old Lucille Ball episode where the, the classic one where uh, Lucy and Ethel were on the production line and there are all these chocolates coming on the conveyor belt and really grasping at everything, trying to keep everything ahead of the... Uh, Hopefully you know that reference. Some of the audience may or may not. Um, <laughs> but just this hectic chaos of always trying to stay on top of everything. And now I try to uh, take more measured steps that mean more. So I, I'm not frantically paddling, but I'm more calmly uh, sure. navigating game design, which isn't always easy to do because it can be quite demanding and you're dealing with other people's deadlines, not necessarily your own. Um, and it's also made me look for games that I want to work on rather than games that I have to work on. So for example, you had mentioned war games. I had never designed a war game before. So a few years ago, I'm like, design a war game. It's not going to be your normal chit and counter hex-based movement war game like uh, GMT or Avalon Hill may produce. So I designed a game called Three Years of War, which was about the worst three years of the 30 Years War doesn't matter which three years, just the worst three years for you and uh, the principalities that you're working on. And it was all about, there are nothing but bad choices in front of you. And you are trying to make the choices that hurt you the least out of nothing but terrible ideas. Uh, and it's a drafting game. So I really don't want three of my soldiers to die, but can I afford to let you do that? Because you've got more soldiers than me. So... I don't, I don't know, man, but do I want to lose food? I don't know. And it's just this weird uh, look at a drafting game where nobody wants anything that's out there, but you might want it slightly less than I do. <laughs> right. So anyway, um, I started to go after projects that were more interesting to me, and I made an effort to work with uh, people and publishers that I hadn't worked with yet. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to work at Fantasy Flight Games with people in the Asmo Day family. I'd worked at WizKids. I'm like, there are so many other people in this industry. And there are so many great people that you've met at conventions and you've you know, met so many wonderful publishers. Try to work with more of them. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's strange that as significant an event as it was and as huge an effect that it had on me, my life, and my family, that in some ways, trying to look at the bright side, the heart attack actually opened me up to opportunities that I probably would not have considered otherwise. What what a great story, and I wish you continued uh, continued good health. Um, Thank you. It's uh, uh, yeah, you know, as we get older and start to, to start to understand our own mortality uh, more than we did, then life life comes into perspective, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, so Fantasy Flight and X Wing. Let's let's bite off the big one, right? At least okay. as it relates to games in hand probably right that's that's touched a, a just a tremendous number of people um 
we some some interesting innovations there, right? Is that the first place we saw the focus tokens? So I don't know about that necessarily because what the focus token really does is it creates a partial icon on dice that are only unlocked when certain situations occur, um, right? And so other games have had uh, situational, I guess, activation. Like Kevin Wilson had done that with a number of his games like Descent, where this ability would only activate if these certain circumstances, if these icons or if these uh, symbols had come up. Um, so, I mean, that concept was kind of always out there. And I have to credit one of the uh, designers who helped me with this, Adam Sandler, was like, you know, it, it's really tough on dice with these limited number of faces to provide a wide range of results, but have some of them not always happen. But to be able to show that your pilot or this situation or something else is special about it, so working along with that and, and realizing that we can have things triggered um, and that you have got to make a decision about whether or not having that activated is important enough rather than one of the other. Everything's an opportunity cost. So are you going to do that instead of something else? Um, whether it's from building your uh, fleet to begin with and having characters that rely on that um, or in game when you're making decisions about what am I going to do on my turn? So... I think we did a good job integrating that into the game, but I don't think that we're the first game to feature something like that. Um, I just think it's, since we tried to declutter a lot of what's in X-Wing, it's just one of the things that's easier to notice because it helps streamline everything. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as a wise man once said, there's not much that's new anymore, right? I, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I, I tell my students that, uh, not to be daunting, but about 7,000 new products come out every year for the hobby gaming market between games, expansion, supplements, and all of that. And not only are you going up against every game that's ever been designed, even Mancala and Senate, but you're also going against everything on Netflix, everything on Hulu, everything anybody could do that's not your game. Right. Um, right. So it really is hard to come up with something that's genuinely new. Now, every once in a while, you'll get something your Magic the Gathering or your Dominion that introduces a new model of gameplay um but a lot of times i think that most of my games have basically been trying to see all right i did not create deck building and i don't want to create a deck building game but i want to use some part of that and that became blood bowl team manager or i like um these elements in uh, flight games like i had played crimson skies by fasa and i had played uh Luftwaffe and uh, Aces High and a number of other dogfighting games. I'm like, well, a lot of that sensibility is what went into the Star Wars films. So what can we do from these games and can I look at and are there things that can either be grafted on or maybe a source of inspiration? But it, it is really difficult to come up with something that is absolutely brand new, especially for something that already exists like Star Wars. So, I mean, we're already starting with half of it not being new. And so the rest of it, how original can we get with something that people are already familiar with, because if we come up with something that's too new, it's not going to feel like Star Wars, right? And it won't serve the brand, right? Absolutely. So when when you got the the assignment, um, how how what are the parameters that you're given when you're dealing with uh, with Fantasy Flight and you're dealing with the Star Wars franchise and a license agreement? What parameters do you feel as you start the design? 
So it's really challenging because depending on whether you're working with a licensor or not, uh, you have a lot more freedom or different options available to you as a designer. For example, working with uh, Warhammer with Games Workshop or Star Wars with Lucasfilm, I not only had to answer to my producer, Michael Hurley, and then you know the CEO of Fantasy Flight, Christian Peterson, but then we also had the entire legal department uh, and licensing over at Lucasfilm that also had to approve of everything. So now I have to meet the expectations of more people. So that was definitely a challenge. Um, and you're given a certain sandbox and they want a game that is going to generate them revenue, but they might also want a game that's not directly competing with another game that they have with a different publisher. Uh, and so there are a lot of conversations earlier on in the process with a license talking about what can we and can't we do. And sometimes getting those can'ts is more important than getting the cans because it's easier to, to know, like the licensure will tell you, it's, it's weird to think, but originally in Star Wars and art, we could not feature shoelaces, buttons, buttonholes, or belts because those did not exist. And if you look through the original trilogy, none of those exist. And then we start to get on Disney Plus, the TV shows, and I remember the art director, former art director at Fantasy Flight Games, and I got in touch with each other going, did you see that episode of Mandalorian? They had shoelaces. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So, so there are some odd things sometimes you cannot include. Um, and then there are other things that are expectations that even the licensor might not realize. And the example that I can give you for X-Wing is we had to decide on a scale that we were going to work on. Like Micro Machines had a certain scale for their ships, and we had to decide on what scale are we going to have. We're going to use a three-foot by three-foot play area. We had already decided that. So what size ships do you make so that you can fit a field out there? And what makes a reasonable feeling number of decisions? Is two ships too few? Is eight to 10 ships too many? So we're looking back at, uh, I think we had settled on three different sizes of ships that we could possibly go forward with. And some of it was going to be based on manufacturing restrictions and the technology at the time for creating 3D models and uh, the injection molding. But a lot of it was also game design. But as I understand it, when the 3D models were submitted to Lucasfilm um, for approvals, question came back going, you do not have the specs for the TIE fighter, right? And they're like, really? Yeah, the, the hex panels and the distance between the cockpit and the wings isn't right. It's like, well, here's the source that we used. And they're like, wait, that's an official source too. So let's go double check. And what it turns out is there were two sets of specs for TIE Fighters that were both canon because there was an A-shoot team and a B-shoot team for the films. And they didn't use the same TIE Fighter models. They had two different TIE Fighter models that were built by two different teams and used on two different shoots. So there were literally two different official TIE Fighter models. And, and uh, Christian got to choose which one to use <laughs> for X-Wing. So as soon as X-Wing came out, because it's such a, a fan-driven license, people were like, oh, you've got the wrong specs for the TIE Fighter. And it's like, ah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there, there are weird things that you don't expect like that. And how does that affect things? Well, until we get a decision back, that might hold up other things. Are there other things in the queue? Or actually, until we get a decision back, that might give me another week. <laughs> that might right. build in extra time for me to play test or try something different. 
Um, all right, so that's the licensure part. For me, this was actually one of the smallest teams of people for a project that I worked on, uh, which was interesting given the size uh, of the license. But I think part of that was the people who were on this team absolutely loved Star Wars. And we knew Star Wars. We knew that we were going to put our blood, sweat, and tears into this game, which we did. But we're also supported not just by design, but by fantastic producers and artists and everybody else that's in. I think this project, more than any other, showed me truly all the steps that go into making a game. All the people that are involved in some sort of decision making and how each of those decisions influences the final product. And one anecdote for that is the producer for the game, Stephen Kimball, uh, was playtesting it once, and the measurement system for X-Wing, for people who aren't familiar, you use these templates. So you use these small little measurement templates and rulers and line them up to the front of the base of the figure, and then you move to the end of that template. And it was really hard to know where to line up that template. So he was the one who came up with the idea of putting the little nubs on the sides of the base so that the little ruler would literally fit into a slot in the front of the base so that there's no confusion, there's no question about whether or not you're making an accurate movement. And it's something that as a designer had never occurred to me because I'm thinking more about the inner dynamics of making ships explode. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that particular feature. Right. But the producer looked at that and immediately saw an opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a, a real fantastic project to be given, particularly because I was still relatively new at Fantasy Flight Games. I thought this would go to like a Kevin Wilson or one of the other more established designers who had worked there, but I was next up in the queue. And uh, Christian had really liked the work that I had done on my previous projects. And it was like, let's see what you can do, buddy. Um, so yeah, it, it was a, a great project to be on, um, but it was also, I was nervous almost the entire time. <laughs> Because not only did I want the people at FFG to be proud and happy, I wanted to be excited by it. But there was so much anxiety uh, when we were waiting for it to get picked up by the public and see what those initial impressions were going to be. Right. Uh, and I'm grateful. Yeah, not everybody loves it. It's not everybody's cup of tea. But when I would go to a hobby shop or a tournament at a convention and hear people making pew, pew, pew sounds and quoting lines from the movie, I know that I, I did something right. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's absolutely. something that you don't get from other projects. You don't have that instant metric um, right. to be able to do. Anyway, yeah. You asked for meandering. You got meandering. I love meandering. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I've made a career on meandering. So let's continue to meander. Uh, and I, you, I'm keeping notes, too, because you've raised so many things I want to talk about. But the the um, that license agreement, they also have the the right to reject your design, don't they? So I mean, it was that is that a concern at all while you're working on this? How do you how do you reduce that risk? That's not a concern of mine at all. Um, I don't even think about that. I'm asked, and and I have to answer to the people internally first because they're going to make approvals about whether or not it's even going to be submitted to Lucasfilm for review. So I have to make the people you know at Fantasy Flight Games happy, and they're really the ones driving my decisions and. If they think that the ideas that I've come up with are good enough to show to Lucasfilm, I've got a fairly good degree of confidence that uh, feedback from Lucasfilm is mostly going to be positive or that there will be minor concerns 
issues, but the, it's not going to be something disruptive like scrap it and start again. Um, in fact, I am prone sometimes to hyperbole, but I think without too much exaggeration that X-Wing might be the game that I worked on where the like second or third prototype that I came up with ended up being the closest to the final product um, where other games like level team manager, it was my 13th prototype that ended up being the one that eventually became the final project. And it took me 13 iterations, yeah. but for X-Wing, I had a really good idea going into it of what I wanted it to be because I had a really good list of, it cannot be this, explore some of this, and you know what we do best. We do bits, pieces, custom dice. So, you know, using those constraints and opportunities, I'm like, all right, let's explore this way. First one, nope, that didn't work. <laughs> that was a good exercise, though, because now we know what we don't want to do. Um, but the second one got a little bit closer. And the third one, we're like, wait, this is, this is starting to feel about right. Um, because one of the things that I wanted to make sure could happen were things that we see in the movies. And one of the things that we see in the movies is that we do see uh, TIE fighters being shot down with a single shot. So I knew that in this game, it had to be possible for a TIE fighter to be downed by an X-Wing in one hit. But what does that mean? Does that mean a rookie X-Wing pilot or does it need to be a really good X-Wing pilot on a good roll with the right circumstances? So like we were going back and forth with this formula and we had the we knew what the answer to the formula was, but we had to still come up with the variables that would get us that answer. So we were actually kind of reverse engineering it that way to come up with how are we going to make it um, so that we can have that situation of the X-Wing exploding up a TIE fighter with that one shot, but that we still are giving ourselves enough flexibility that we can have different types of X-Wings, that we can have some with an astromech and some without that we can still introduce an A-wing and a B-wing and a Y-wing, that we can have a TIE interceptor, right? And from this initial formula, we still had to get all of these other things to also end up being true if. Um, but that was the starting point, is the, the one-hit kill. Um, right. It was an interesting place to start from, but it ended up being the right place to start from. Right. Uh, and, and it was really fun, all the different ways that we tried to get there until we settled on the one. It's like, all right, this works. And that's what ends up being in the starter set. For people who aren't familiar, the starter set is one X-Wing miniature and two TIE fighter miniatures. But you get a number of different cards that represent different pilots and different accessories that those miniatures could be equipped with in the game. And one of those is a rookie uh, type of TIE fighter pilot and then a more seasoned X-Wing pilot and it's that at the right if, if the X-Wing is directly behind the TIE fighter at close range and they roll well they can kill a TIE fighter <laughs> um, but yeah it, it's those sorts of things the more that I could show that stuff from the movies could happen yeah. the easier it was to do and that was particularly true with the role play game which is a lot more subjective based as all role play games are if I could get moments from the movies recreated, both in playtesting groups, but then also show to uh, my superiors and then Lucasfilm saying, no, you can recreate uh, scenes from the Death Star where Han is running down the corridor uh, after the stormtroopers and turns his corner and comes running back as he's being chased by an entire squadron. You could recreate um, Empire Strikes Back and the uh, different lightsaber duels that we have there. Um, 
it's just confirmation that we're designing in the right direction. Right. Right. Absolutely. Then there's the, uh, you know, the other thing I was thinking about as you're talking about that, the effect of damage, there's also a critical component, right? Um, which I, as I recall, are cards. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I love when you've got uh, unexpected things that can happen during a game. And the critical hit cards actually came out of the damage system that I designed for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition. Uh, critical hits in that game are represented by cards. So when they're face down, it's just an injury. But when it's flipped face up, it has a detailed explanation of what has happened to your character. And it's a critical injury. And I'm like, you know, we can kind of do the same thing. We've got these damage counters, and those are just regular hits for ships and X-Wing. But we also want to reward people, sometimes for the luck, because there's this nice, fun, tactile, and, um, you know, unknowable excitement about randomizers like dice but then also strategically you put yourself in a position to afford yourself the opportunity to roll under these situations and you got a critical hit let's not have it be the same in every situation because not every single instance is going to be the same if it was it's eventually going to uh, get repetitive in play and i mean we have some diehard x-wing players who are still playing it you know more than a decade after it was released. Um, and so to keep it fresh, the critical hits are from minor little things that may or may not influence your general decision-making to things that are dire threats that you need to address before you can get back tactically into the battle. Right. And so that critical hit deck, I think, was really, really fun. And it's another thing, like, when you're about to roll the dice, it's that, you know, Schrodinger's cat moment of it both is and isn't a hit yet. And once we roll it, then we know. But until we roll, it could be anything. Oh, well, now we've got this new situation, which is also this Schrodinger's critical hit, that it could be anything. I could instantly blow up your ship, or I could just, you know, uh, take out a minor system, do an extra point of damage, whatever it might be. Aha! It's, and then one of the two players is going to be really, really excited or really, really uh, disappointed with what that is, but it's another one of those moments. Um, and it also took advantage of what FFG does well, which is another... Um, element of bits, these custom cards that could be included and uh, sit alongside the rest of the system and add a little bit more variety, but also a little bit more texture to the game. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Now, now you mentioned earlier uh, that the, what are the things that we're good at, right? Is is FFG and and it was bits, pieces, and custom dice. I believe you said, and that yeah. I I found that interesting. Could you expound upon? The, the 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 view um because I, and, and as an aside uh you know i i design war games and i do it with a gmt which is relatively small compared to ffg uh 5000 print run is a big print run right and, and they've got that 500 if they can get 500 yes the 500 uh, presale okay. yep yeah yeah um so and, so but but it's it's a very different it's, it, they, they certainly have their strengths, but it's it's yeah. different than custom dice, right? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, and so one of the, at the time that some uh, Fantasy Flight games were uh, coming out, and I would probably point to Twilight Imperium as the, the first one, um, first and second edition had a lot of cardboard in it and used hex, a lot of hexes instead of square chits, but it had those two. And it started to use different types of dice. And then you get 
Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition, which comes in an enormous box that they called Coffins um, internally. It's just like it was the biggest box on the market, I think, at the time for uh, a game. And it was $99, which people thought, oh, that's never going to sell at a uh, hobby store. And they flew off shelves. And it was a very large scale operation. There were more than 100 plastic miniature ships in there in a number of different colors. Um, there were the dice, there were both uh, card stock components, so they took a cardboard as well as a number of decks of cards in different sizes. And at the time, we had these Euro games coming over from uh, particularly Germany, but they were called Euro games because they were coming from Europe. And they were more of your Carcassonne and Settlers of Catan and very, very simple designs that usually didn't lean on a lot of components. And then you're probably familiar with the, the comparison or the complete opposite of that ended up being Fantasy Flight Games models, which got dubbed Ameritrash, unfortunately. Um, that we as Americans were held up with all the bits and pieces um, and that real gamers did not uh, enjoy those. I'm like, no, what? Are you kidding? It's awesome playing around with plastic bits and all of these things. <laughs> And, so, and yeah. randomness was also a component of that critique. Yes, yes. Um, a lot of games that originally had come over from uh, Europe, I think, worked with perfect information so that everybody at the table could see everything that was going on at once, which sometimes led to a lot of player analysis as they're mathematically really trying to calculate the true best option. Where a lot of American games, even the like GMT games that relied on lots of six-sided dice or, you know, the, the dice bucket games that we would uh, refer to them. The, the dice added a variability or decks of cards added variability that helped upset the, the human calculus because it also helped with handicapping skill levels. Like in chess, it's really hard to hide the skill level difference between opponents. With dice and cards, you can kind of obscure or help balance out some of the skill discrepancy. Uh, now, a better player might still, on average, win more often, but there's that chance for the upset. There's that chance for the um, weird third standard deviation dice roll to come up where uh, you didn't expect this to be the case, but oh my gosh, the one out of 4,096 chance happened. Um, and I'm like this, I, I started playing Fantasy Flight games before I started working with Fantasy Flight. So I had also been caught up in a lot of this. And really the only European company that was doing Ameritrash games at the time was Games Workshop. And I was big, big into Games Workshop games and the uh, miniatures games at the time. And so that was kind of my comfort zone initially was working with a lot of components, working with cards, working with miniatures. And for me, I love custom dice. So when I got to design um, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, one of my directives was use crazy dice, like lean into what we do, different colors, different sizes, different icons on them. And I did that. And um, people either loved or hated it, probably the most um, divisive part of the third edition design. But it ended up being the soul for the Star Wars narrative roleplay system, which ended up being very well embraced by people. And I'm like, it's still pretty much just the spiritual successor of this thing that you hated a few years ago. Um, but I just, I love custom dice in particular, but Fantasy Flight also at that time, they were developing better relationships with printers and publishers overseas so that it was easier 
with larger print runs to be able to afford to put plastic into your game, to be able to afford to put uh, 100 cards into your game instead of just 50. So as a designer, it was interesting. And what I wasn't expecting when I worked at Fantasy Flight Games was the budget work and actually working with, all right, if we want this game to retail at $39.95 and working backward from that, that means that I have a, a cost per unit of five or six dollars. So how big a print run is this going to be? Uh, we might print 10, 20, 50, who knows how much, but like I need to know so that I know how much is a single regular six-sided die going to cost? Okay, now what's it going to cost if we want it red? Okay, what's it going to cost if we want it custom? What's a miniature going to cost? What are custom cards going to cost? And um, some of the design decisions were based on how many cards can we get on a sheet of paper that this printer uses? Oh, we can get 70 small cards on a sheet versus 48 large cards. Let's get 70 small cards. There's not going to be a lot of text on them, right? And it was really interesting for me to look at it from a completely different standpoint because before FFG, I was either a completely personal hobby designer for myself or I was working at like WizKids doing um, other smaller kind of uh, side project or support roles than I was as lead design roles. And I, I really wasn't expecting to be knee deep in the money part of it and seeing how much that influenced the materials that you had to work with. And sometimes you had to adapt and say, all right, the design that I wanted with this set of components that I had in mind didn't really work. So if we massage the budget and give ourselves more cards, what do we have to give up? Okay, well, if we give that up, does that hurt the core gameplay or is that something that was kind of the secondary or flavor element? Um, and, and it was really interesting because fantasy play games at the time was really one of the larger publishers in America that was working on those larger print runs with those types of components. And had I been working at a smaller publisher, I don't think I would have been the person working on those. It probably would have been uh, the head of the company doing that. And then just coming back to me and saying, yes, you can use those. I want six, six sided dice and it's going to come with these. Uh, but I got to propose things and say, I think this game would work best with this. And then uh, Christian or Michael or somebody else could say, yes, that's a good move or no, we want it. That's too similar to game XYZ, uh, go in a different direction with this. Um, yeah. So that was really interesting to work on and see how that affected design sometimes. Yeah. To, to have direct access to the levers. Right? Yeah. It, it really goes back to one of the, so I, I've talked about Kevin Wilson a couple of times. People aren't familiar. He's really, really well-regarded designer. He's been around a long time. He designed uh, Descent. He designed the updates to Wiz War and Cosmic Encounter. He designed Arkham Horror, the updated Arkham Horror. So he's done dozens and dozens of games. And he was there when I started working at Fantasy Flight Games. And I was really nervous my first month or so there trying to prove myself. Um, and I was worried about asking for an extension on a project and I had gotten an extension. Then I wanted another extension. I'm like, ah. he gave me some of the best advice I got in my career is remember you start out designing a game, but you have to end up delivering a product. And it really shifted my perspective going, yeah, at some point I have to say as much as I might want to keep on working on it, like a painter might want to keep making little changes and, 
you know, embellishments to that. At some point, you have to be done or it will never be on a store shelf. And if it's never on a store shelf, it is never going to be purchased. And if it's never purchased, the company's not going to make money and I'm not going to get a salary. So uh, you've got to be reasonable and know when, you know, which, which hill do you want to fight on um, and really pick your battles with that. But it was also one of those eye-opening moments for me as a designer going, oh, wait, you don't have unlimited time to unlimited resources. You do have to deliver a product. It might not be the best product, but it is the best product that you could provide with the time, the resources, and the circumstances. And that was hard for me to accept at first, but I, I had to because that's just part of the industry. Yes. Um, you're not going to get everything you want, right? Like you always hear the, the pillars of, do you want it cheap? Do you want it fast? Or do you want it um, well done? You can't have all of it. Uh, right. So pick two. Right. It's interesting the uh, you know the the difference between working for an FFG and some of the smaller shops as a as a contractor, right? You generally design the game; it comes out when you're finished, right? There's the, yeah. the deadlines are less, and so there's less time pressure, which I think sometimes is a bad thing, right? I, I, a, a a wise designer once told me that that games are never finished; they're just published at some point. Right. Yes, that is another, that, that's an excellent anecdote. And, and I would love to know who that wise designer is at some point. Well, it, you may know him. It's Mark Herman that told me that. Um, I'm not familiar with titles that Mark Herman has done, but probably. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get you, I'll get you a link and you'll yeah. probably remember. Yet. But that is just, to Harold's point, a fantastic truism of the industry. That is yeah. absolutely, absolutely true. Um and it was kind of interesting. One of the other changes that my big, big heart attack and health issues had is um, legacy building. Not legacy games, but my own personal legacy. What am I leaving behind? What's my footprint here in the game industry? Uh, the hobby gaming community has always been important to me. How am I affecting it or influencing it? And that might sound a little arrogant or egotistical, but I'm like, I'm, I'm in a position to make games like other people made games that I played for the first time or that got me into hobby gaming. And who knows, maybe X-Wing is what gets somebody into hobby game. Maybe a role-playing game I work on is what gets people into role-playing. Uh, so there was this like almost level of responsibility that I wanted. And I started to become more focused on let's get names on games. And my philosophy with that is I might pitch a game to a publisher and they might come back to me with terms that are not ideal. It might not be the percentage that I wanted on royalties. It might not be the sort of distribution that I was expecting for this. It's not going to be, uh, they want to change the theme of the game. Um, and I used to be very, very tied to all of these things. And this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. I'm like, at the end of the day, now that I'm not working full-time salaried as an employee of a company where I'm getting, you know, health insurance and everything else, and this is my full-time salaried position, but I'm doing this as a freelancer. Am I doing this for money and more I doing this for personal satisfaction and enjoyment? And if you're doing it for satisfaction and enjoyment, fulfillment, right? And, and those, and it's not, you can focus less on money. Yes, the money is still important. You're, you're investing time into this. Um, 
But the less I focus on that and the more that I focus on the fulfillment, not only am I enjoying it more designing it, but I'm getting more games into the marketplace. And ultimately that's what I want is I want my games out there. Um, and again, not every game is going to resonate with everybody, but the more publishers that I work with, the more diverse types of games that I get to work on. Um, the most recent game I worked on, I worked on simply because, again, it was a type of game I had never tried. It was a cooperative game, which I had not worked on. So I'm like, yeah, I, I would love to work on a co-op game. I've played a lot of co-op games. I've just never designed one. So tell me more about this. Um, and I started looking at it more as opportunities to do that sort of thing. And if you're driven just by the dollar, whether as a freelancer you are uh, getting enough turnover with contract after contract after contract rather than waiting long times between them, um, or if you're not full-time positioned, then uh, you, you don't have the luxury of being able to do something because you want to or the way you want to. You have to make more and more concessions. Um, and I'm more comfortable doing that now than I used to. It's, you know, this discussion of legacy is so interesting to me because, you know, we're, we're similar vintage. I'm in my fifties and, you know, facing the back quarter or half of your life, right? Um, how many more game designs do I have in me? How much more can I produce? And, um, and, and one of the things it's led me to personally is uh, to make things more accessible, right? I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, I, I'm, now I'm interested in broadening the hobby and pulling people into the historical games hobby and not spending so much time about the pedantic definitions of this or that, or the game isn't that, or it is this, and, and trying to stay focused on just what can give a lot of people enjoyment and get them interested in the history that's so rich in, in my seg, sub-segment of the games. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, I, I, I've, I've completely, with that thought process, probably over the last five years, I've changed how I think about design, but I've also think that changed how I think about community, right? I mean, we, we have a little organization here in San Diego and we do all sorts of things that we can't, all the things that we can to advance accessibility in the hobby and create diversity and, and um, you know, make it the community we want it to be and, and, and allow it to grow and thrive and prosper, um, knowing that, you know, our, our footprint you know, will be washed away by the, by the ocean at some point. So you really want to have the impact that you can at the end, right? Now, you just brought up two things that I think are really, really important. And the first is um, this could be the last game that I design. And I do now think if this is the last game I decide, am I going out with something that I'm, I'm proud of? Am I going out? Did I really put my best effort into this? Like if this is it and you don't know, this might be. Are you really happy with this? Is this what you want your legacy to be? Um, but accessibility is something that has become increasingly more important, uh, not only as the industry demands it, but also just as society uh, wants that, expects that. Uh, I have taught both video game design as well as tabletop design, and accessibility in both leave much to be desired, but I do think that over the years it has gotten better. The simplest form of accessibility that I teach my students is being colorblind friendly. Um, and I have an app on my phone and I make all of them download it that it will just on my screen through the viewer, it'll show me what somebody with red green color blindness, Deuteronomy, 
um, or the different types of colorblindness, because I believe that seven to eight percent of the population is colorblind. Um, and so if you are not aware of that, and if you don't take the 30 seconds it takes to just look at your game components through the viewfinder, you're really missing an opportunity to better serve the gaming community. Not only building up the reputation of, wow, this publisher got it right, this publisher paid attention, but also that uh, you're just doing and adding this step that you may not have thought about because it doesn't apply to you, but it's just being more mindful that, well, it does apply to somebody. And if it if it's not taking me out of my way, if it's not um, watering down the ultimate gameplay, it's not hurting the bottom line, it's not doing all these things, it's actually serving me, it's adding value, then that's something that we should be exploring and looking into. Uh, and so, you know, with colorblindness, for example, you got to be really, really careful with red and green, but then you also, why not use icons? Why not use shapes? The position that you put something on a board. Um, and there are even certain Photoshop palettes that you can pre-install into Photoshop that are already colorblind friendly yeah. so that you're working with colors right off the bat for graphic designers or artists that are going to uh, be accessible to that. Now, you know, that's colorblindness. And then there are other types of uh, accessibility too. We talk about some people with uh, mo mobility accessibility and are there certain things that we can do? And some games you can't because of the nature of the game. Like Jenga is a game that simply will not be accessible to everybody. Um, just like some party games will not, cannot be accessible to everybody. So if there are certain audiences that we can reach, then I certainly want to make sure that it is as acceptable to as many people as possible. Um, so not only do I try to make my students more aware of that, but I, it, it's part of the checklist that I go through. Of what have I done? Have I really thought about all the different ways that I could do this? Um, does this need to be a small little pawn that might be difficult to pick up? Could it be something else instead? Wow, this type is really, really small. Is there a way that we can maybe put it, uh, condense it so it's not as wordy, but now it can be, you know, 12 point font instead of nine point font. Right. Um, and enough of those little touches and you're making actually a, a bigger change than you might realize. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point. I want to ask you about your teaching, but I have one more question on X-Wing, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, did you start that, that mission with a, a view of who the customer of that product was going to be? And, and has the reality been different than what you expected? So to answer your question, no. I did not have the luxury of knowing the target market before I started designing the game, which sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Because usually, I mean, marketing, advertising, production of most kinds, you need to kind of know who you're selling your thing to before you start making the thing, whether it's a spatula or a car. Helpful, yeah. Yeah. Um, but... Oddly, I didn't have the luxury of that. And the reason is we wanted the game to be available and accessible to everyone. And for a miniatures game that has some delicate components, that we want to have some tactical sophistication that is going to be at a certain price point, right? Like there are all these factors competing against each other 
that say, well, if it's too much of this, then it's really not accessible to that younger, family-friendly, right off of the target shelf audience. Yeah, but if we get too close to that, then we're not really serving what we think might be the diehard long-term players who are going to be buying it, you know, over time. And, oh, what about the tournament circuit players? It needs to be have enough tactical depth that they're interested enough that they're going to be playing in this and that's promoting this game on a completely different level. And it was really, really difficult. So initially I said, you can't focus on that. You've got to make the best game you can make. Start with that. And then they will come back to you and tell you. And what's interesting is it came back and said, Oh, we do want three markets. We want the family-friendly market. This has to be accessible to somebody who could open up this game and within minutes be playing. It also has to have the tactical depth and richness of somebody who wants high-level competitive play, and they're going to make custom squadrons. That's a completely different level of play. Those are like the high-level tournament Magic the Gathering players who scour the internet to find the best builds and metas that are going to lead them to victory. But then we also want the, the pure hobby gamist who is going to pick up a particular ship, not because of its statistics, but because they like that ship. Oh, I love Boba ship, Boba Fett's ships. Right. Want. Well, I want Millennium them. Falcon, right? Yeah. Who doesn't want to own the Millennium Falcon? I don't know what its specs are yet. I don't know what it, but um, I want the Millennium Falcon. Like I got that for my brother-in-law and he just had it as an ornament at his desk. He didn't play X-Wing at the time, but he, he's like, the Millennium Falcon, this is awesome. Oh, and I have to hand it to the uh, designer of the model, Jason Bedoin. Uh, at the time, Lucasfilm came back and said it was the most detailed Millennium Falcon they'd ever seen at that scale. Wow. Um, and, you know, that particular scale, I'm sure that there are a lot of other Falcons and a lot of other scales that were also very pretty. But as you go down in scale, you have to give up detail. You just have to uh, because of the limitations of technology. And at some point, you get so small that you will not see every manifold. You will not see every exhaust port. Um, so I think we did a really good job, and it's easier to see on the Millennium Falcon that we got it right than it might be on an X-Wing or a TIE Fighter. Like You look at that Millennium Falcon, and you're like, yes, that is the ship that is zooming around in the movies. Uh, but, but, but to your point, again, those were the three different markets, and that was really difficult with one game system. And this is, again, where... Uh, other people in the process really helped. So production was like, why don't we have a one sheet that as soon as you open the box, there's an intro sheet that says, uh, like, for the first time you play or first grab, and there are just quick start rules. It tells you, take this card, take this card. Don't go through all of them. Don't worry about reading everything. You do not need to know all the rules yet. We want to teach you the basics. And it walks you through the basics of maneuvers because those are generally the most complicated parts of the game and like combat exchanges so it gets you playing within minutes and for some people that level of play might be the deepest level of play that they want great we've served that market some people that might be like all right i got the core idea down now i'm ready to go into the larger rule book and start leafing through it to find out what happens on a collision what happens you know with all of these other uh, cases. And now we've served that market of the gaming theaters. Okay, well, we've got to figure out point values for all of these things. All of these things, I should say, 
we already have values for these things in spreadsheets and databases, right? Like we had to decide what was going to be more powerful an ion cannon or a blast is, is uh, piloting of this going to be more valuable than shields of, right? So we were already doing the math on the back end. So we can turn that into a value that we put on a card that people can use for a hundred points and get as close to hundred points as you want without going over kind of like prices, right? And we designed this stuff. You put it together in the best hundred point bundle you can and see what happens. And now we're reaching those really dedicated people who are going to be scouring forums. who are going to be going online. who are going to be comparing stories who are going to the uh, hobby stores on weekends to play in local tournaments going to the world to going to another country to play in the X-Wing finals, right? Um, so it's really exciting to see that by the way that I was designing it with the help of a few other people saying, oh, wait, what if we do this? Oh, wait, what if we even just fill the box in this order? We can actually serve all three of those uh, target audiences without getting in any of their way. So the fact that we have a quick start rule does not deter or hurt the deep level player in any way. The fact that we have point values on the cards does not make the quick start game any less valid. If, if you don't want to get to that level of detail, you don't have to. You can still just pick the ships and the cards that you think are cool. You might find out that it's a little imbalanced and then next time make a judgment to mix it up, but you still might make that based on uh, aesthetics rather than, you know, data. And, and that's perfectly fine. You can absolutely do that. You can just say, what would happen if I have eight rookie TIE fighters against the Millennium Falcon? Can the Millennium Falcon survive that? Let's just find out. And it's right. just kind of a, a thought experiment rather than a trying to make a tactically even uh, encounter. And there have been a lot of really fun uh, people have made scenarios trying to recreate the, the trench scene right? The trench run from A New Hope uh, or other battles that we see and just, can you do it? Um, so yeah, it, it was really rewarding that the base system that I started with still had to make a couple changes to it here and there once I got the feedback, but that we started at the right place. That, that formula that we had, that one X-Wing had to be able to one-shot a TIE fighter in the right circumstances, that formula was still going to work that we weren't going to have to throw away weeks of design and development. Um, so that was really encouraging. It was also exciting to hear back then from the, the layers above us that we think what you're doing is solid enough that we can have our cake and eat it. Too. You know, we, we can do this. This is really difficult um, to be able to serve multiple audiences with one product, and we think we can do that. And uh, I think X-Wing was able to do that, not because of me, but because of the team, right? Like I did not have all of the skills, knowledge, ability, and access to all of the information to serve every one of those single markets um, with every single thing that they were going to want. But that's why I, I really, especially when talking about X-Wing, want to make sure people understand that this is a group effort. Um, I am very proud to have my name on the cover, and I, I believe my name should be there. I I designed an engine there, but I cannot overlook the amazing people who worked on it and the people who took over X-Wing once I moved on to other projects and then once I had my health concerns and had to leave. So um, Alex Davey and James Niffen and all of these other people ended up 
taking over X-Wing and continuing to support it. And then when the new edition came out, I wasn't involved in that. And it, you know, was now um, in the capable hands of a whole new group of people who love the game. And, you know, as a creator, what more can you ask than the thing that you created is in good hands? Yeah. You know, it's um, a, a, a normal game, right? One without the such uh, great support or franchise uh, pull may get played one or two or three times. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, my favorite games I'll play more, but when, you know, if you just think about the universe of games, that's probably an average or reasonable expectation. Um, but there's nothing that, there's nothing that scrutinizes your work like a tournament, right? Tournament play and consistent play and a lot of hands and a lot of smart, thoughtful, de devoted fans, right? Digging into your game. Were you anxious about that before it hit the tape, before it hit the, the public? Oh, absolutely. Um, because I loved Magic and you know, Magic came out while I was still in college. So I played Magic from the very beginning. And for a while I was doing the Friday night Magic kind of thing and going to the hobby shops and playing in local tournaments. And so like I understood the competitiveness, even though Magic cards don't have this number value to them we're going to now quantify something and say that statistically this thing that's 50 points is as good as this thing that's 50 points. That's daunting. Oh, I, you know, and I played a lot of tabletop miniatures games too. So I played Warhammer. I played all these things that have point values. And again, you're trying to create these armies that have parity, but still play uniquely. Um, and then the biggest worry that I had is Again, like I said, X-Wing was designed to have an X-Wing go against a TIE fighter and have the rebellion against the Empire. But in tournament play, we would see Rebel versus Rebel and Empire versus Empire builds. Those were the ones that scared me the most. <laughs> because then it's like having, instead of rock, paper, scissors, it was rock, rock. And, you know, that's what I was worried about happening, particularly at the beginning of the game when we didn't have more ships available. So we didn't have the A-Wing out yet, or we didn't have the, the B-Wing out yet, or we didn't have, you know, the TIE Advanced, or we didn't have nearly as many cards to be able to choose from. What's going to happen in that earliest set when the number of possible builds is fairly limited that you could mathematically probably calculate what the best viable uh, armies are going to be and expect to run into those at tournaments if that's if that's the level of play that you play at then you build to run up against those uh squadrons and that might end up meaning taking the same squadron against them because it's the most evenly matched uh, and so early on we did see a lot of similar squadrons fighting each other at higher level tournament play i can't speak for all of it because i wasn't the organized play coordinator um but i do remember later on i had gone to uh the uk expo uk gaming expo and watched um at least the european tournament and i'd like to say that there were 50 tables so 100 people playing at the time and just walking up and down the aisles and nobody knowing who I was and just looking at it. And now after it had been out a couple of years, seeing the diversity 
And yes, you're still going to see, oh, there's another Slave 1 build. I kind of recognize that. Oh, but they've got a different, uh, you know, set of uh, enhancements with it. Or here's one that's the, there's a TIE Fighter build where you just put as many cheap things out on the table as you want, because what you want is more attack rolls than the other. Because statistically, if you're just rolling more dice, then you're going to hit the high end of that curve more often. Um, and so you just throw, it, it's like spray and pray, where if you throw enough lead at them, some of them will hit. Uh, and that was a big viable build early on in the game. You started to see that less and less as more tactical elements came into the play and other ships that could more easily deal with that. Um, but that is a long way off of your original question of, did that make me anxious? Yes, it absolutely did. Because even just me talking about it, you can see all of the different, you know, factors that I tried to consider and that other people in the team would say, oh, but what about this? Oh, but did you consider this? Or that won't work because. Um, and I, I knew in my heart of hearts, I, I had the um, outlook that this was going to have staying power. I, I really felt particularly as I saw more and more people at Fantasy Flight Games playing it over lunch and things like that, like I really felt that this game was going to have staying power, and I'm so excited that it has. Um, not a lot of games go through 10 to 12 years with only two editions. Like Dungeons & Dragons has gone through several editions in just a couple of years. Only a few editions have lost it, lasted more than you know eight to 10 years. Right. Um, it's it's really difficult. Warhammer cycles almost every couple of years. Yeah. So I, I'm really pleased that X-Wing has stayed close to its roots for so long and has such a dedicated player base. Yeah, well, congratulations. It's a phenomenal game. Um, we so much uh, so much to talk about in so little time. Maybe, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear um, some more about your uh your teaching, you've mentioned it a few times. Um, what part of the world do you live in? Where do you, where do you teach? What do you teach? Uh, what do you like about it? So I live in the Twin Cities. Uh, so I'm in Minnesota, Central Time in the U.S., and that's where Fantasy Flight Games headquarters are. They're, they're near the Twin Cities. Um, and so uh, I worked there for the longest time as a freelancer, it's very easy. Most of your clients are going to be distance clients. So uh, I can just work with them online. And a few times I've had a client where they'd want to fly me out to see a final end product uh, at the stage where we're literally going to go over brass tacks before it goes off to printing. But I'm able to do a lot of that work remotely. Uh, what's interesting is I was approached after my heart attack when I was still in recovery and I was trying to go, I can't go back to the 50, 60 hour weeks at FFG. I can't put myself through that. Um, and I was approached by UW Stout over in Menominee, Wisconsin. They have a game design program and it was a top 25 program in the country. Uh, and they wanted to create a stronger foundation for incoming freshmen, people first starting into the program and get them a better understanding of basic game design elements before they get into coding games, before they get into creating 3D models for games. So these were people who were eventually going to be getting game degrees for video game design specifically. But game design is game design is game design. I mean, if you're designing 
something that is going to have meaningful decisions and important choices, and I basically boil everything down to meaningful decisions, then you're talking about the same thing, whether it's a card game, a board game, a role-playing game, a video game. And now we're seeing the convergence more and more. There are a lot of board games that use apps. There are a lot of video games that basically are just replicating a board game, but they're doing the deck shuffling and the dice rolling for you. Um, so I, I really do feel as a teaching philosophy that anything that applies to tabletop gaming applies to video game design as well, because just good design is good design. Um, and even things like accessibility, like we discussed earlier, is just as important regardless of the media format that you work with. So I was approached by a friend who, uh, whose spouse had worked at Fantasy Flight Games with me. And they reached out and they're like, you know, you know a lot about games and we hear you're not really doing anything right now. Would you like to come teach? Um, what I didn't realize at the time is uh, somebody that was supposed to teach uh, had suddenly taken a position elsewhere. And so they were left with, we need to fill this position immediately, like in three or four weeks before the semester starts. Uh, and so I stepped into teaching what I thought people needed to know before they moved on to the next stage of game design. I was given um, a great deal of control over creating the curriculum that I felt was most important, teaching it in the way that I thought would be most effective so that these because I'm also thinking incoming freshmen, these are people who are just still learning how to be an adult. So, you know, how are you going to frame this in a way that they're going to be able to contextualize this with what's going on in their lives? Um, so a lot of hands-on stuff, a lot of uh, examples of things that they're going to be able to relate to. Uh, we play a lot of Jackbox games because socialization is such a big, important part of playing games, but also being part of a game studio and just basically trying to equip them with what goes into a good game. Well, first, what is it people want to know about games? Um, so I've got like uh, some lessons for that. I've got lessons that a game can be boiled down to meaningful decisions. All right, well, what makes a decision meaningful? And how many of them does somebody need to be, you know, how many meaningful decisions do you need to have in half an hour to feel that that was fulfilling to you? How much luck are you willing to be exposed to in a game before you feel like it came down to the dice rolls rather than decisions, right? So the shorter the game, usually the more uh, luck and chaos tolerant we are. If it's a 10 minute game and it's chaotic and crazy, fine. I can get beat by the dice and I'm not gonna flip the table. If it's a two hour game, right? That's a table flipping moment uh, where you just feel that out of the spectrum of all of the games being played anywhere out there in the world, one of those games is gonna be the worst possible set of outcomes. And you're going to complain and argue that yours is just that. Uh, but, but trying to get them to see the sense and scope and scale that a lot of gaming is going on. And you've got to be aware of edge cases. Because even though it's unlikely, and it might only happen to 0.1% of the people out there, if your game is being played thousands, tens of thousands, millions of times, it's going to happen. And games, what do we love about games? We love to tell stories about games. So people share stories about games. And what are the types of stories that we tend to share? Is it the average game where we rolled averagely and everything went in an average typical way? No, it's the outliers. Things where everything went absolutely horribly or things where it went absolutely fantastic. 
whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or Risk. We talk about the really exciting swings. We talk about that one army that staved off an advancing army in Risk, and you just kept rolling sixes while they couldn't roll above a three, right? Or we talk about, um, I, I was down to my last hit point when the dragon was attacking and I needed to roll a natural 20 or our entire party would have been killed, and I rolled a natural 20, right? Like, right. those are the stories that we share. So if those are the ones that we share and those are the ones that get posted online and those are the ones that we read about and that people are going to blog about and talk about on podcasts, then you really need to make sure that you are accounting for those. doesn't mean that's where your total focus should be, but you at least have to be aware of those and address those and say to yourself, yes, I can live with that happening. I, I will be fine if that happens in my game. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's being able to think in those ways, which I don't think a lot of uh, people first getting into game design consider, yeah. particularly the scale and scope, because you're usually working with just friends and family, or maybe a place test group that has maybe up to 20, 25 people, or they're doing a, a proto spiel or a type of convention that is tended to be smaller, but it's specifically for prototypes of play testing. So they might branch out to 50, 60 people that play their game. But once it's out in the wild, and it's being played by people you've never met in countries around the world. And it's being played an unknown number of times. Uh, you better make sure that you are making good decisions based on the feedback you were getting. Um, yeah, so just being aware of a lot of the different things that you're probably not thinking about right now. You just thought, I love games. I love the games growing up. I want to be a game designer someday. Right. Game design degrees weren't available when I was growing up. But now they are so if, as somebody who has loved this hobby forever, if I want to bring people into this hobby and position them to be successful and to keep loving this hobby, what would I have told myself yeah. when I was their age? And that's kind of the approach that I took, and that's what I've been teaching. I also teach a class um, over a, an intense three-week winter course called board game production processes, which is more of the, the brass tacks, like the budgeting and how does a game actually get manufactured. Uh, and we talked to a dozen experts in different parts of the industry. Uh, we're gonna talk to somebody from distribution. We're gonna talk to somebody from player organization. We're gonna talk to somebody from community management. And you're gonna learn all the different roles that exist. You're not gonna be in these roles probably, but you need to understand them. Um, so it was really exciting and Stout gave me the flexibility to basically say, all right, we, we trust in your experience. And you've taught after your first year here that students really like you and you get really, really good reviews. We want you to keep teaching this. So um, yeah, I, it, it, was, it was a really great opportunity and they gave me the benefit of the doubt, uh, which I really appreciate to be able to say, you know, I, I know this area. Let me be a subject matter expert who really loves this and share what I think is important. They sit on some classes, they review my syllabus and curriculum, and they're like, clearly you love this, and, and we think that this will position our students to be successful. That's great. Well, uh, sh sh spreading your experience is certainly a good thing and, and will uh, we'll accelerate people through that learning curve, right, being designers. Jay, um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. So much more to talk about. Maybe we'll do this again and talk about role-playing uh, for the I would love to. Uh, as you can tell, not only do I love to meander, like you mentioned before, but uh, I'm, if nothing else, even if people don't like my games, I hope they come away with an encounter for me 
uh, whether it's a podcast or meeting me at a convention, that at least they know I'm really passionate about games. Yeah. And I did what I thought was best for that game. Yeah. Um, but I love talking about them. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I would love to do this. All right. Very good. Thanks, Jay. Nice, nice talking to you.